Hi guys, welcome to episode 4 of the Vinyl Conflict podcast. This is our Christmas episode, so we're going to be getting stuck into some jolly Jingle Bell tunes tonight. With me as always are Daniel and Jamie. Say hello guys. Hello guys. Alright Trips, what's happening? Cool stuff. So tonight's fair, we're going to be comparing two kind of heavyweights in a sense. We've got Michael Bublé, his Christmas album, which I think is just called Christmas. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, we've got the Christmas present by Robbie Williams. Part one, which we're in just now, is going to be dealing with Bubbly. Jamie is going to be talking about Bubbly. So take it away, Jamie. The clue is in. What's this album all about? No danger, mate. I am going to be talking about Michael Bubbly, which is most of my pals will know that actually most of the things that I talk about are Michael Bubbly. So this is just par for the course for me. 2011, Michael Bubbly decided to release a Christmas album in October which was a poor move, if I do say so myself. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> it turned out to be pretty uh, successful. Most people that I know have heard this album, and either in part or in its entirety, probably because I've played it to them. It's no secret that I absolutely love this album, but it is a super popular Christmas album with a certain elderly lady population, and me. And it was released uh, October 21st, 2011. It wasn't quite well received obviously being released in October but by December of that year it was well on its way to selling a million records in the US and the UK. It's a big heavyweight, I'll get to some of the numbers later as well but spawned three singles was Michael Bublé's biggest release ever. He's had quite a lot of successful albums. I don't really listen to a lot of Michael Bublé outside of the Christmas stuff. It's not quite my thing, it's not quite jazz, it's not quite pop, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. But since actually it was released, it's had quite a lot of really, really high accolades. It's one of the only albums to consistently reach the top 10 or the top 40 every single year since its initial release. And actually it sold 12 million records to date. That's insane, isn't it? It's quite a lot of albums, so it's a big favourite. I mean, I absolutely love this album. I could talk about it to him absolutely blue in the face. But I think maybe what we should have a wee chat about, first of all, is... Well, what do you guys think? Will we do our least favourites or our favourites' favourites? First of all, let's keep with tradition and go with the favourites first, guys. The favourites, favourites. Aye. Go for it. Cool. So I enjoyed this album. I put in my notes as a very inoffensive album. I feel as if folk that say, oh, I pure hate Michael Bublé. Oh, he does a thing about Christmas or whatever. I think that's just one of those edgelord try-hard things. <laughs> you can't actually hate this album, even if you don't really like it. There's nothing to especially dislike about it. But that being said, listening to it, obviously, for the most part, other than a handful of songs, it is a covers album. And as I think is a shared opinion among most music fans would be that the best thing you can do with a cover is to change it up quite a bit. So for that reason, my favourite track on the album was White Christmas that he did as a duet along with Shania Twain and I think without speaking the ill of the dead sorry Bing but I thought you were going to say Shania Twain was deep there I was like what? (laughs) (laughs) No no not the late Shania Twain who sold her shoes to Phoebe Buffay Thank Christ Without speaking ill of Bing Crosby the original one is actually quite a boring song you don't put it on at the Christmas party to get everybody up on the dance floor but this version I think think you probably actually could and changing it up a bit to turn it into that duet style there's great harmonies in that throughout I think it just is a great example of taking a song and just really really revamping it and making it other than the lyrics and the kind of basic harmony to it almost unrecognisable from the original so really really enjoyed White Christmas on this album cool man nice one obviously 
Shania Twain as a fellow Canadian and obviously Michael Bublé as well. Right. It was a big surprise. I remember being in Scotland. This is a really strange like fact, but Shania Twain's album Come On Over, which was a massively successful release, was one of the most successful albums in Scotland of all time. Really? I When I was in uni, there was this really weird statistic that it was something like every household in Scotland has a copy of Come On Over by Shania Twain. Wow. <laughs> I can get on board with that because my household, at the time, obviously, when that was released, I was living with my parents because I was only like 12, but my house had two copies of it. <laughs> my mum and my dad had a copy each of Shania Twain's Coming Over. <laughs> nice. But it was a surprise because obviously she's, by and large, she's a country singer uh. and Michael Bublé is a crooner. It was a weird combination. I think obviously it's because she's Canadian, but it's good. It's really good. Aye, it's really good. It's a really, really good song. And obviously, White Christmas, I don't think it was originally a duet, but it became a duet with Bing Crosby. Uh-huh. I might be wrong. It might originally been a duet, but it was good that they kept it in the tradition. But are you right? It is different to the original. It's still quite clearly White Christmas. Aye. Cool stuff. Totally. Craig, what do you think, man? What's your favourite? I actually, and I never thought I'd say this out loud, I really like the fifth track on this album, which is All I Want For Christmas Is You. Now, for context, I hate that song. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good start. The Mariah Carey version goes through me. There's loads not to like there for me. It's kind of like what you were saying, Daniel. I really like what he's done with this. I really like what he's done with this. I'm not a big Bublé fan, and I have to say, don't know if this is going to, if this is going to shock you, Jamie, but I'd never heard this album. What? Until last week, when I started properly filing through it. But the version of All I Want For Christmas Is You on this is really nice. Dead Sedate. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of bit more soul to the song, the way he presents it, the way it's arranged. That's the one for me, man. I mean, there's not a bad song on it. Maybe Santa Baby, but we'll get to that. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> oh, I... Noted, I noted. I want to go first when we get to least favourite track, by the way, just throwing it out there now. But... Alright, okay. You're saying about the All I Want For Christmas Is You. I was in work the other day, and the actual Mariah Carey song come on, and socially distanced, I had a conversation with the guy next to me, and he was like, here, <laughs> see how in the 80s and 90s I was like aye and he's like was there some kind of agenda where if you were a female singer the mere notes you sang in a song the mere money you get paid <laughs> and I was like that's a really good point actually <laughs> now Mariah Carey's career to me is like a fart in the wind a very very little experience with it it blows right past us but man see the intro to that song now she can sing right but it rips my knitting right you can sing we get it Calm down a wee bit, dial it back. She's an amazing singer, but she's out at the karaoke. She's nine brandies in, and she's like, ah, watch me, guys, check this out. And then she belts out the notes, but the Mariah Carey one was super cheerful, and you know that dead forced shuffle Christmas with the bells and all that? Aye. Whereas the Michael Bublé version's more of a ballad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's different enough, but it's the same enough that it's still recognisable. So, good shout, man. Aye, yeah, I yeah. like that. My favourite. Do you know that her birthday is unknown? What? <laughs> Wait, is she like Lord looking? (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God. Oh, I mean, I'm on it right now. (laughs) See, if you go on to Mariah Carey's Wikipedia page, it says, born 27th of March, 1969 or 1970. So it does. As if she was somebody for the 1200s that we don't quite know. So I tried to look a little bit further, and there's articles about it saying, like, and Jamie, you're going to love this based on a previous incident that you had, but it just said Mariah Carey doesn't believe in years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet she believes in birth certificates, but that's brilliant. Aye. Oh, that's amazing. So weird. I'm on her Wikipedia page, you know, this is wild. It just says, Mariah Carey was born in Huntington, New York, on March 27th, 1969 or 1970. And you're like, all right. It's like she's Sarah Winchester. <laughs> 
this mental <laughs> sometime in 1840 <laughs> like, uh, see if you're gonna lie about it you'd be like I might be 30 or I might be 40 aye you don't say I might be 50 or I might be 51 thanks Daniel for pointing out to me that's fantastic aye that's beautiful that's my fun Christmas trivia fact <laughs> thanks very much <laughs> my favourite song on this album is Blue Christmas it's the Elvis cover. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I like this. It is, again, I think this is like a really common thing with this. Tracks that are different, but are similar enough. Daniel had said, like, if it's just the same rehashed old stuff, which a lot of Christmas songs are, what's the point? It's like when you go to a gig and they play their album in entirety, with the exception, obviously, of My Chemical Romance's Black Parade, I could have just sat in the house. Aye. Blue Christmas in particular is enough of a remix, if you will. I, I love that dead, thick, heavy... Dixieland, New Orleans dirge and that's what this song is it's swampy and it's thick it's disgustingly slow and there's an absolutely ripping trumpet solo in it as well which is probably the least cool thing on the planet <laughs> I've got a, a really great pal of mine and a fantastic musician Mikey we play in bands together and stuff he's a trumpet player a trumpetist a trumpeter I don't know a trumpeteer a trumpetit he always shows up to the rehearsals and he's got his wee case and his wee trumpet I mean, he's amazing, he's a fantastic player, but when you're looking at it like that, that's no cool. <laughs> when the guy gets a guitar out of flames on it and it's made out of knives, you're like, ah, that's cool as anything, but trumpets not so much. <laughs> but the trumpet solo in this, this song is just out of this world, and it really suits the song, which solos generally don't tend to do. Michael Bublé's singing and his vocal performance is the other reason why I love it, is out of this world. I love singing along to this tune, pure belting it out. One of the things I do if I'm coming home from work, I've got quite a long commute and I've had a difficult day, is I'll put on a song and I'll just pure scream at my windscreen and then really enjoying the sing-along. And this is one of these songs where you really feel that you can let go and really blast and sing along to it because the vocal performance is amazing. Like, I love that song this much. I'll listen to it at certain points through the year just because it's a really good song, which as much as I love Christmas, I tend to avoid Christmas music until you know, the end of November, the start of December. But that song is so good and it's so well orchestrated and the instrumentation's great and the arrangement's fantastic. I'll actually stick it on every now and again just to listen to it because it's a really good song. And I think that because it's one of the later tracks, it often actually gets missed because it's surrounded by, I can't even remember what's before it, but that kind of tells you that it's not the best song in the world. <laughs> aye, aye. I'll just get it in a wee second. But the one that's after it is an original. It's the only original on that album. And that quite late in it as well. A Silent Night that's before it which is, you know, Silent Night. Mm -hmm. But then Cold December Night, which is track 12, is the only original. And Blue Christmas is track 11, and loads of folk don't get anywhere near that in an album. It's a pleasant wee surprise for me, and I love it. It's, uh, it's a winner. Okay, so we've talked about what we like, or at least what our favourites were. What are we skipping when we're listening to this? I really, really want to go first here, because I've got a bit of a rant yes. that I want to go on, and I would appreciate it if you don't interrupt at any point, right? Whether it's good or bad. You crack on. Can I jump in the new then? I remember on episode one, I went on a mad rant about Margaret Thatcher, and I remember that that got cut for the episode. So see if you go off your nut and go on a mad rant. No, it didn't. No, it's no. I'm sure it did. I edited that one, and I did not edit anything. <laughs> I just trimmed the start and the end. <laughs> just hit the least. <laughs> I pretty much. Right, okay. I was kind of thankful actually that you cut it out, but now I'm going to need release an apology to all the fucking Margaret Thatcher fans. It's <laughs> alright, she did. She's not going to apologise. Don't bother, they're all dicks. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies, Daniel. Please go on your rant and you will be uninterrupted. Right, okay. Fantastic. So. Craig alluded to this earlier. Now, my least favourite track on this is Santa Baby. Now, 
the original version of Santa Baby, I already hate. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because wanting to shag Santa is objectively weird. I'm not here to kink shame anybody. You can like what you like, but if you really, really think about it, wanting to fuck Santa Claus is really, really weird. As if it wasn't a bad enough song as it already exists. Michael Bublé took this song. This is Michael Bublé, like one of the purest souls in the world we're talking about here, injected this with his own dose of toxic masculinity, where if he sings about a man in a romantic way, that must mean that he's gay. And Craig, I know you hate that as well, because I've heard you talk about that in, in songs. Indeed. When people change the lyrics, so like, oh, I'm not going to be singing about a guy anymore, right? The further it gets into the song, the more it makes me cringe. When he changes baby to buddy, and then later to pally, I thought it couldn't get worse than that. But when he changes Tiffany's to Mercedes, I'm glad I don't currently own this on vinyl, because I probably would have thrown it out the fucking window if I did. I hated it, and every time it came on, it made me angry, because I quite like it as an album overall. But that song comes on, and even talking about it now is making me want to go and start a kickboxing class or something to get my aggression out. <laughs> I fucking hate Santa Baby on this album, but I quite like the rest of the album, so I can't hate Michael Bublé for putting it out, but I feel like that's one that should have ended up on the cutting room floor. Can I chuck in a rebuttal or two? Oh, yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I'm fine with the fact that you don't like it. I wholly appreciated that because there is definitely some machismo that oozes off that record, that song. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he's singing it about Santa is really weird. <laughs> know that because Santa's a dude and that Michael Bublé's also a dude, that's totally fine. Santa's made up and he's no real. <laughs> in the eyes of the record company, they don't care. Aye. It's a bit much. <laughs> you know the whole Santa buddy, Santa pally? I am assuming that that's because that's a popular Canadian turn of phrase for friend. And I actually feel that that fits in quite well because obviously there's the big homage to Canadianism with Shania Twain and then the whole Terence and Philip, you're not my friend, buddy. You're not my buddy guy. Like, I quite like that. I get it. It does feel a wee bit like they're trying to update Santa Baby with some of the stuff. The first line in the original Santa Baby is slip a sable under the tree. And I remember looking up, like, what the hell is that? Is that a sword? It's a fur coat. Oh, all right, okay. I try to drag that song into the present. And that's cool. That's all right. But it's not my favourite. I totally get it as well. The other thing that I like is you said that Michael Bublé is the purest soul, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> he is, man. He seems like such a nice guy, but I hate the fact that he done this. He does seem like a nice guy, but one of the things that I've, in my extensive Michael Bublé research, is he done a couple of Christmas specials, and he's been on the telly and that before him. I'm sure he's maybe seen bits and bobs, right? Mm-hmm. This guy loves a drink. Aye. I don't think I've ever seen him on the telly where he's... <laughs> where he's been sober. No, had at least seven or eight whiskeys in him. Aye. The Christmas special that he done on NBC and ITV in the UK, done it with like Gary Barlow and Don French. By the time he sings Blue Christmas, which is about two-thirds of the way through, he's absolutely pished, and it's great. That, that sounds amazing. So he's definitely that, that swagger. That sounds like a guy who's living his life right. Oh, aye, 100%. He crawls out his cave in October, ready to go on Christmas tour, and he just drinks the entire way through it, and it's great. I love it. <clears throat> right, Daniel, that was a rant well-observed and well-delivered, I have to say. Indeed. Thank you. I wanted to pick up on one thing that you said about the whole changing the genders in the song thing. I kind of get why they do it this time. I'm not saying it's a good thing. When I was listening to this back, I was like, I, what, what did you do that for? Just sing a different song. But I, that song's a monument to consumerism anyway, which is why I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you my least favourite now, and it's a tie. Santa Baby nearly made it. And I think if these two songs had they been on it, Santa Baby would have definitely been the one. <laughs> I really don't like the fact, and I found it uncomfortable, 
when I was listening to it. I do not like the fact there's religious music on this album. Interesting. I am of a similar opinion. The reason for that, I think it's good for the listeners to hear this take, is I'm not a weirdo. I've been a lifelong Christian, as you guys know, and I don't like it when people make money off of stuff like that. Mm. It's why I don't listen to a lot of Christian music, because... They all think they're kind of rock stars and stuff. <laughs> Did you see that South Park episode where they started the Christian rock band? Is that why you feel this way? No, no, I feel this way because I've been in Christian music ensembles <laughs> and I've seen the difference between being sincerely there to help people observe the religion and being there to sincerely make a wad of cash and get deals with M Audio and Gibson and things like that. Aye. Aye, there's something that doesn't sit right with me. Any religious song doesn't need to be a Christian thing, but mm-hmm. any kind of religious observance song and commercialism just doesn't sit right with me. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the version of Ave Maria and the version of Silent Night that's on this, I just don't think they've got the gravitas. Aye. He's a good singer. Michael Bublé was a great singer, great technical singer and loads of Emotion comes through most of what he does. Aye. I just kind of felt a bit flat after listening to those two. Particularly Silent Night, because it's a favourite of mine. Silent Night probably edges it, maybe because I wasn't brought up Catholic and I've not really got the same relationship with Ave Maria. Yeah. It's maybe a more serious thing than we want to have in this podcast. Mm-hmm. That's what kind of stuck out for me. Not that it's necessarily a bad version, but it just leaves a wee sour taste in my mouth. No, no, I get it. Jamie, do you have a least favourite song on this album? I do. I have similar feelings towards the religious music, but probably for different reasons. Mm. My two least favourites is Silent Night and Ave Maria. Silent Night is a great song, and I think actually in this album it's really well done. Indeed. The choral vocal arrangement that they do, and I think it's like a bunch of kids, which ticks all the boxes for Christmas, and we're definitely going to talk about that when we talk about the Christmas present by Robbie Williams. (laughs) It does tick the boxes for a classic when I say classic, I mean the vintage Christmas vibes. And actually, I think the Silent Night's well delivered. Ave Maria, for me, however, is not. No, I don't know if he's a religious person or whatever, or if there's any personal feelings as to why these are in it, but yeah. it kind of feels like the two of them have been shoehorned into this album to have like a, maybe Christians will buy it. He is Catholic, which I just Googled in the background there. He was raised Catholic, but... Right. I just Googled it there as well, I Which is cool. I don't think that he shouldn't be singing that song same as that i don't think he shouldn't be singing feliz navidad that's cool as well like that's absolutely allowed i just feel that these ones are forced into the album and it might be for a commercial perspective it might not be i think if i'm looking at purely from a musical standpoint as i said from the commercial analytical standpoint is that these songs don't feel like they're in the right place because all of the other songs with the exception of feliz navidad but there's reason for it are swing or big band arrangements of popular Christmas tunes, which most of them actually already are swinger big band because of the years that they were written in, but these two are not, and they don't feel that they fit in particularly well. These would have been better on the extended edition, or the deluxe edition. Aye. Bonus tracks. Aye, exactly. Aye. And do you know what? They're nice songs. Speaking subjectively, they're nice songs, but objectively speaking, they don't feel that they fit. Silent Night and Ave Maria are two of the songs, in fact, probably the only two songs that I skip when I listen to the album. Silent Night's got a bit of a redeeming factor that there's a really beautiful part in it where the yeah. chorus of Wayne's join in and they hold off on one of the big vocal chords until later on. It's quite a wee bit into the song, but it's in like on the second beat and they all open up into this sort of three-part harmony. It's beautiful. It's really, really nice. And I always go back and listen to that bit. Mm-hmm. 
is a really clever arrangement because at first it sounds like a bunch of primary school kids just singing along and then it opens out into a choir arrangement. It's really, really nice, but Aye. Ave Maria, no. For me, it doesn't feel like it fits. It's, it's well done and all that. It's well recorded and arranged and such, but I skip it. It's not for me. I think Craig and I share similar observations on the religious connotations of these songs. Yeah. I feel like it's a bit tacky that they're there. Aye. But I might be totally wrong. He might have really insisted in it. That might be his Catholic upbringing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Paying homage to Big JC or that. But I just feel like it's like, nah, put these tunes in here. Aye. I think as well, we are probably not the demographic that he was putting them in there for. That was probably for the grannies and the housewives. Like, Aye. She's got a picture of Jesus in her downstairs toilet. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> aye, aye. No, I'm definitely not in the demographic for Michael Bublé, but my God, I think I've got like three copies of this album in different formats. Amazing. That was an interesting thing I was thinking about when I was listening to this, because my gran would have loved this guy. I don't know that she listened to him. She was a kind of generation of like Daniel O'Donnell, Cliff Richard, these kind of guys. Barry Manilow. Well, maybe not so much, because she was a God-fearing woman. She <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't have heard her singing Copacabana. <laughs> can, you, can you look at the hips moving like that? Oh my God, Barry. <laughs> no, no, no. You would have been affronted to the poor woman. But it's funny because when I was listening to this, it kind of felt like that's the niche that Michael Bublé and others kind of like him. Not that there's too many now, right enough, but that feels like the kind of space and the music oeuvre, if you like, that he's taken up at the minute. I just wanted to fling that in there as a wee question to you guys. What do you think of the place he takes up in music? I think it was until recently. Have you heard his most recent single? I mean, it's not his most recent single, but have you heard his most recent musical offerings? No, I don't think so. No. So it's him and it's a Gary Barlow song. Because mm. apparently him and Gary Barlow are pals And it's way Forgive me I can't remember the guy's name I think he's Brazilian It's not a bad song But it's not Michael Bublé And I think he's maybe trying to break into some other markets Because actually mm-hmm. He done a song called Haven't Met You Yet oh, Which was played during my wedding It's a fantastic song I love it But it's a really strange jazz influenced Straight up pop tune Aye. And I think that that's kind of where he's gone So I think the market originally was He's a crooner mm-hmm. Aye but I think that people that like the crooning style of singing in the big band and the swing and all that don't buy records that much. Mm-hmm. So he's maybe moving away from that. And the music, I'm going to be honest, isn't he great these days? It's not really got an appeal for me. Uh, aye, aye. I like his older stuff because he jazz and that. I think Michael Bublé is a bit of a weird one because I feel as if, as I mentioned earlier, I think he's very inoffensive. And I know sometimes if you're a musician, that's probably the worst thing that somebody could say about you is to call you inoffensive. But the first place I ever heard Michael Bublé played at length was I had a maths teacher in high school who used to always listen to Michael Bublé. had it on in the class all the time. This maths teacher was a man in his 40s, not that sort of housewife demographic that we were talking about earlier and I think it's just one of those things that he's got good a voice and that smooth voice that he can only really play not he can only play but he's best suited to doing that kind of jazz and swing influenced music but I think you're right Jamie I think he did want to try and foray into the pop world a bit and I just don't know if it's right for him I don't know if he's better being niche probably isn't the right word because he is obviously a massive artist I mean he sold 12 million copies of a fucking Christmas album like who else has done that I don't know I like Michael Bublé but it would be hard for me to place him if I was a top record producer now and Michael Bublé was on my label now with everything he's done already I wouldn't know what to do with him 
because it's either go back to doing more of the same that he did before, and he did it well and could probably sell some, probably still in the millions, but would sell albums still doing that. Like you say, Jamie, it's whether you want to take that push at trying to break into the pop market, which that song, Haven't Met You Yet, was a very big success. But again, I'm not that knowledgeable about Michael Bublé, but I don't remember him having a single since that that's made anywhere near the same level of impact. So maybe his time as a pop star, it's over maybe. And I don't mean that to say like, oh, he should retire or whatever. But maybe he should just go back to doing the jazz and the swing type stuff because I don't know if being a pop artist is what's intended for him. Aye. We spoke about religion for two minutes and now I'm talking about his fate and his destiny. <laughs> he can do what he wants if he wants to bring out a punk album tomorrow, then fair play to him. The other kind of comparison that was in my head when was to obviously guys like Dean Martin mm-hmm. and Sinatra and these kind of guys. And I actually think he's almost like a kind of modern-day Perry Como. Dead, soft vocals, like you guys say, inoffensive. A sweetheart to listen to. Mm-hmm. Nothing particularly jaggy or edgy about him. Aye. It must be hard for an artist like that to find a foothold in the industry now because so much is made of being a bit edgy and a bit out there and he's quite mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, but it must be difficult for him. Aye. Let's talk production, guys. I wonder if you found this. Because when I was listening to this, I was listening to it in the car and it sounded dead bassy. Mm-hmm. Like I was having to turn the volume down because it was so much low end coming through, almost to the point where it was drowning out certain things. Yeah. I don't know if there's something wrong with my car or something, or something unusual about the production. I watched a making of this album, nice. which I had to buy on DVD to get. <laughs> I couldn't find it online, but one of the things that really impressed me about this album was the authenticity they put into the arrangements because as we have alluded to earlier Michael Bublé is a singer who belonged to big band era Mm -hmm. and almost all of the music on that album is done either with an orchestra in part Mm -hmm. or in a big band and it was played by real musicians with real instruments and Mm -hmm. airs moving and everything it's great for me they must have spent an absolute ton of money recording this. Aye. I spent a long time trying to figure out how much it cost. There's been a couple of things that I've alluded to, like it's one of the more expensive albums that have been made, say, the last 10 years, which I would I fully believe, Yeah. considering that all of us have had experience in recording studios to some degree or another and know how much they cost. Mm-hmm. But considering how big a room that... Aye. You know, you're talking Abbey Road. Easily. I easily. Obviously, when it comes to big band or part orchestra, or even in some cases in full orchestra, you need to do it live. There's no other way to do it. So the production value of this album is super, super clean and shiny, which generally speaking, I don't like. But for this type of music, it is obviously a commercially driven thing. They, they set out to make a really, really good Christmas album. And mm-hmm. by God, they did. But they would have chucked a pure ton of money at it. I agree with you Craig There is quite a lot of bass in this album And I think the reason I don't know this Is because they use natural bass instrument So they use double bass on almost all of the tracks Which for those who are unaccustomed Is the upright three quarter or full size The jazz bass or the upright bass Whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. I think it sounds two octaves lower than an electric bass And then obviously you've got the bass brass instruments as well Mm -hmm. So there is a richness and a fullness in those instruments that's missing for a lot of contemporary music, with the exception of synths, which to me they always sound artificial. There's a real rich fullness in this album that actually isn't really present in a lot of them, and I can get how that can sound overwhelming. I've got this on vinyl, I've got it the regular old streaming stuff, but I've also got a lossless copy of this. 
Nice. For people that don't know, lossless is essentially, it's almost as if they've made it in the recording studio and then you just plug your headphones straight into the desk. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't lose any quality. It is super rich. It's a full spectrum of sound to attest to the fact that it was recorded with like a full big band. So I think that that maybe goes some way to answer that. Mm-hmm. It is quite a basic album. But I think that that's why. Aye. Aye, absolutely. Yeah, I think both these are right. It is very heavy on the bass. And Jamie, just out of curiosity there, I've just went onto the Wikipedia page for this album and scrolled down to the bit that says personnel. And it's probably the biggest personnel list I've ever seen on an album because there is, as you see, a full orchestra there. It's, it's actually pretty cool to look at because everybody's named. Mm-hmm as far as what they did and I I think that's one of the things about this album is it sounds really really authentic it's not a bunch of programmed garage band orchestras it's the real deal I think it is heavy on the bass and I don't necessarily think that's a negative you know Craig had kind of alluded to not necessarily a negative but when I think about this album I feel as if it wasn't being bought for you to sit in the bedroom and blast the same way you would go and listen to the Sex Pistols or something it is a holiday album and it's made for kind of celebration I could picture this as being the album that they thought right when people are sitting around eating their Christmas dinner this is what they're going to be putting on when they're playing charades it's an album that's supposed to be enjoyed with company, in my opinion. So I think the heavy bass really, really suited this. Although, fun fact that I found out while I was researching this, and it's kind of funny that this is heavy on bass, because one of the producers on this album was Bob Rock, who produced Metallica's St. Anger. Oh. Mm-hmm. That kind of blew my mind a bit when I read that, just because I was like, I wonder if he bumped into any Lars Ulrich types while he was making this album. I wonder if he had as difficult a time as he did in that Some Kind of Monster documentary. I doubt it, to be honest. Lars Ulrich wouldn't have been allowed to even look at the keys for the recording studio that this was recorded in. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I just thought that was funny that it was Bob Rock. He just seemed to be one of the guys that after he did that Metallica album, he just went and worked with everybody. Probably in part, due to the exposure that he got off of that because it was the one that they ended up winning awards for despite the fact that the Metallica fans didn't really like it but this wasn't about Metallica so I'll let Craig get back on track (laughs) if you don't mind there's two things that impressed me about the personnel listeners if you go to the Wikipedia page the amount of blue clickable links in the names of the personnel is incredible that means that they're important enough to get their own Wikipedia page Aye. and the second thing is there are some massive names in the personnel and that's just in the liner notes that's not like the full list of people Aye. obviously they're not going to be like second chair trumpet third chair flautist they're naming with the big hits Dean Parks on guitar I'll go with the drummers because that's the ones I know you've got Vinny Koliuta the real deal Peter Erskine Jim Keltner's on it these guys are massive session musicians Aye. well I thousands and thousands of dollars an hour these guys would have been getting paid so Aye. they chucked a whole bunch of money at it it was a good job at sell 12 million records do you know what I mean I'm just reading down the liner notes here and I love the fact that there's a wee guy on it the assistant recording engineer called Eric Mosher nice <laughs> I quite like that because it's such a contrast to the tone of the album but uh, I just wanted to give Eric his wee shout out because his name is No Blue mm-hmm. so hopefully through this podcast we can get him blue and get him his own Wikipedia page and get him verified <laughs> Mosher if you ever wonder why we're talking about your name it's because that's the type of folk that used to hang about outside borders Moshers are looking for a home if anybody wants to offer them a place to hang about feel free hit us up we'll start a Patreon page for the Moshers <laughs> so guys I don't know if there's much else we can really say about this album I imagine you probably can 
<laughs> I could probably do an entire podcast on just this album, but one last thing, this would probably link us quite nicely onto the second offering that we have for Christmas, but Ooh. I would like to address an elephant in the room about this album. Michael Bublé is a fantastic contemporary big band and swing singer. Mm. He has incredible range. He's, he's no accuracy, he's fantastic. He's clearly been trained. Mm-hmm. He can work a scale or two. Right. However, there is an egregious use of Melodyne on this album in certain places. Mm-hmm. For people who don't know what Melodyne is, you might be more familiar with auto-tune, meaning that they've tuned the vocals. And there's some songs where it's horrendously apparent. I'm not going to lie, right? Everybody that's ever worked in a recording studio or is familiar with the technical aspect of music, like we guys are, Almost every single song that actually makes it onto the roster on a recording has got some form of melodyne or autotune or processing done in the vocals at some point. Yeah. Almost nothing is left untouched these days. It's just the standards that everybody expects. But Michael Bibley's a fantastic singer and you wouldn't think he needs it. Mm-hmm. But to the point where it's so obvious in some of the tracks Aye. that we can pick it up, it makes me pure sad. Now, there's a couple of like really bad offenders, right? And... All I Want For Christmas Is You is, is probably the biggest. That's the one I was thinking. That's, that's fair. Listeners, if you go to your copy of the record, <laughs> and if you go to All I Want For Christmas, there's two bits. First of all, it is the shittest midi piano sound ever. <laughs> if that is a real piano, <laughs> what did you do that for? Because it sounds horrendous. Like, it really does. It sounds like the most processed nonsense ever. It's like some high school Casio keyboard that's been plugged straight into like a mixing desk that probably cost about 750 grand. Anyway, first couple of notes that he sings off tune. They're so flats, no the word. Mm-hmm. Speaking in musical terms, I know flat, but oh. they have no variation in their motion. The voice has got a normal vibrato. The pitch slightly changes up and down as you sing at a note. Mm-hmm. But his is just, it's too perfect. And then that register, that's really, really difficult. I'm not going to say that Michael Bublé's not a great singer, because he is, he's a fantastic singer, but mm-hmm. the use of Melodyne or Autotune, Aye. it's not Autotune that they use, it's Melodyne that they use, but to tune the vocals. And some of these songs, particularly that song, is so egregious that it made me kind of sad. Mm-hmm. However, actually, if you go back and listen to this album, you'll pick up on it more. I mean, it'll be a year before I listen to it again like that. I think I'm already... <laughs> And I might have actually ruined Michael Bibley's Christmas for you. I'm really sorry, but... No, not really. <laughs> wait, wait, you don't listen to this every day and they're running to Christmas. Well, that's not. Must, must just be me then. I genuinely actually think I listen to this album at least once a day, every day in December. I'm not even joking. I genuinely love this album. It's great. We will be talking about egregious autotune more in part two. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to pick up on the autotune, the Melodyne thing a wee bit. I never noticed that consciously, but I think at some level there was something annoying me about the production on this, and I think that might be it. Mm-hmm. The pennies kind of dropped a wee bit, and I think if I was to say anything as a closing thought to this album, is that it is a wee bit too perfect. And I don't know if that's because the last time we had an episode of Anal Conflict, mm-hmm. it was two albums that were kind of rough and ready in a lot of senses and put together in a very DIY kind of way, Aye. and then you're hit with this thing that cost an absolute bomb to make. I don't want to hear imperfections in music. Mm-hmm. That's for the live environment and they make the live experience what it is. But I just found it difficult to get emotionally connected to a lot of the songs. And I think that's why I think it was just too... Cookie cutter. 
I'd say. Aye, that's the word. That's the word. Aye. Daniel, what's, what's your closing thoughts, man? As I said before, I think this is a really easy album to listen to. If one of the songs comes on my shuffle, unless it's Santa Baby, I don't think I'm going to be in a hurry to switch it off or skip to the next one. Um, I think it was a, it's a fun album to listen to. Um, and it's just, it's it's really, it's an, I've mentioned it once already, but it's an unbelievable feat that this guy released a Christmas album in like a jazz swing style and sold 12 million copies. That's insane. Like, for an album that you're going to listen to like one to two months out of the year to be selling 12 million copies within a, the space of less than 10 years is pretty insane. And I think it's absolutely amazing that he done it. I think it's a good album. Like, it's really hard to put it in in like a particular bracket. And obviously, Jamie loves this album. It's clear more than the the um, yeah. the other two of us do. Um, but like it's it's really weird to have this feeling for an album that's all Christmas songs. Like I don't at the moment I don't own any I tell a lie, I think I've got a Phil Spector um like Christmas hits LP. But other than that, I would never go out and buy a Christmas album, whether it was a compilation or what like um so I just think it's abs it's great and it's fun to listen to and I think this is one that obviously this'll be our kind of closing remarks on the next one. This has got a lot of potential for something that you would actually want to have on your shelf or on your collection. Um, aye? Yeah. I um, just just to kind of like, my, my, I've obviously made this really clear that I really like this album, but I think for me, I am not, I am definitely not in the demographic for this album. I, I don't, I, I like Christmas music. I enjoy it as much as everybody else does, but this album has captured a lot of magic for me. Like, I think that, I get Craig. I get what you're saying, man. Like, absolutely, um, it is. It's too perfect. Yeah. But I think that what they tried to do with this album was go right. A lot of the really good Christmas songs were recorded in the forties, which was the equivalent in terms of the audio equivalent for by and large was like recording it um, <laughs> on a patty, and the sound quality needed a bit updating. You know what I mean, like some of the, the reputations of some of the singers were maybe a wee bit problematic and some of the lyrics were maybe a bit outdated, etc, etc. So I think what they've tried to do is they've tried to recreate a lot of the sentiment and the feeling and the aesthetic behind classic Christmas songs of like the 30s, 40s and 50s and bring that back in contemporary. Do you know what I mean? And I think it had, to, it had to stand the test of time. So nothing other than spending probably a million dollars mm -hmm. to make this record. Um would have sufficed. But to be honest, like, I, I just think, like, for me, this is probably the only Christmas record that I listen to now. I mean, I listen to other Christmas songs, but Aye. I'm an album guy, as we've said before. I would put, and I do genuinely think I listen to this album either in whole or in part almost every day in the run up to Christmas, to the point where about the 10th of December, my wife's like, do you fancy <laughs> listening to someone else? Absolutely I'm like, not. No, I'm sitting there clutching, cl clutching my Michael Bublé vinyl. Just going, no, keep it on. <laughs> Give me like my eyes are looking in two different directions. Keep them on. Keep Michael on. Uh, I think this is, uh, it will stand the test of time. Aye. It's one of the better Christmas records um, ever made. And also, I, um, charts, who cares about the charts these days? But it charts um, every year. See, around about this time, do you know what I mean? And it is a commercial behemoth. That is just what Christmas has become, unfortunately. Aye. But um, the, in terms of the quality of the music and all that, I think it's fantastic and all of it is great. Okay, guys. Uh, thanks very much. That was uh, massively insightful. And uh, 
we'll um, kick on to part two. This is the end of part one of Vinyl Conflict. Part two, we are going to be looking at Robbie Williams, the Christmas present, and hearing more about Melodyne. Uh, thanks, guys. We'll see you in part two. Take it easy. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.